He's got one foot in the frying pan and one in the pressure cooker. Believe me, as a bowler, I know that right about now, your bladder feels like an overstuffed vacuum cleaner bag, and your butt is kind of like an about-to-explode bratwurst. Hey, do you mind? I wasn't talking when you were bowling. Was I talking out loud? Welcome to Munson's at the Movies. My name is Kyle. I will once again be your host. Joined here by the rest of the Munson's. Want to give them a wide berth. He's what is called a born loser. A real Munson. (laughs) And talk a little bit about what's going on in the world. We're going to start with Case this time. We started with last week and uh, I alerted everybody to the impending flooding because of the, the moon wobbling. But my phone and Google have decided to scare the further shit out of me by giving me a headline this week that a, quote, giant asteroid is headed to Earth. We could be so lucky. <laughs> Based on what you just told us, the world's going to end pretty soon. So better, best not to start anything important. Warren, welcome back after two episodes off. Two episodes off is great. Lots of vacation, lots of not watching any movies, finished two books and some TV shows and... Yeah, I was uh, reluctant to come back. Didn't really want to watch any movies, but yeah, I'll, I'll pull out some stops for Holly Hunter. Yeah, we're glad you're back, buddy. Thank you. James, happy to be here. Happy we could, you know, convince Warren to spend some time with us. Just <laughs> glad that he's finally getting his priorities straight. That's true. We're so lucky. Well, Rigby bailed on us last time, and he's going to be making his Hollywood late entrance like Will Smith and Independence Day at some point. Who knows when that'll be? And we'll just adjust when he gets here. On my side... The good part about knee injuries is that when you can't really do much, especially moving around, you just end up abusing your Regal Unlimited pass. So I've been in the movies like four out of five days. And so I've been putting that baby to work. That $18 a month that I pay, I'm getting my value. I'm getting like movie pass level value on this thing right now. So I'm feeling pretty good about it. Dude, there's no such thing as movie pass level value unless you're paying $5 a month. It's as close as you're going to get in this market, I guess. Unreal. So yeah, Rigby will join us at some point. We will welcome him with open arms. We will also welcome our latest guest, our new guest, Munson. Here today, we've got Jay Ledbetter of the In Session Film Podcast. Um, Jay is born and raised on the mean streets of suburban Atlanta. Jay has been called by some the most handsome man in podcasting. (laughs) His looks are only surpassed by his insights, which you will be graced with over the course of this episode. Welcome, Jay. Hey, Jay. Thank you very much. That was so nice of you to to write that. I love that. It was very, you know, it was succinct. It was it was to the point, but it really, I think, gives my aura, you know, my joie de vivre. I think you just captured it perfectly there. <laughs> that sounded like it was written by your mother, let alone written by Kyle. <laughs> A face for podcasting. I never heard that one before. <laughs> it was all that conversation we had, Jay. I just I just felt like it was right. Like my copywriting skills were just on top of their game. So glad to have you, man. Appreciate you taking a little time. I know Absolutely. you've been crushing some David Lynch things and other films. So Always watching movies. I, I thought coming on I was going to be Warren's permanent replacement. So having him on is a little disappointing. <laughs> other than that, I'm excited. Well, speaking of Warren, we've got birthdays for August 12th. First off was Cara Delevingne. You know her if you saw her, but she's really not that good of an actress, but she was number one on the star meter. Pretty much garbage movies. She was in Paper Town, Suicide Squad, the first shitty one, and Valerian, the City of a Thousand Planets. How old is Cara Delevingne? Uh, I didn't know who it was until that last comment. That movie 
sucks. Got big eyebrows. Yeah. Former model. Uh, 28? Yeah, that feels right. I'm going to go 25. 26. 31. All right. She's 29. Wow. Ah. Kyle nailed it. Over the hill in acting. All right. Next up, we got Casey <laughs> Affleck, The Ocean's Trilogy, The Assassination of Jesse James by him, Gone Baby Gone, and Manchester by the Sea, because I'll never watch it. And a lot of sexual assault allegations. 35. Oh, give me 33. I triangulate. I think you guys are way under. I'm triangulating Goodwill Hunting. Came out in 97, 98, and he was probably about 20. I'm going to say 43. Yeah, that's probably right. Jay wins with 46. Oh, oh wow. Hey, you guys were way off. All right. Last but not least, we got Lakeith Stanfield. Short term 12, Selma Straight Out of Compton, Knives Out, Judas and the Black Messiah, and Uncut Gems. Goodies. A lot of good stuff. How old is Lakeith Stanfield? 33. 30. 35. 32. 30 on the dot. Hickman gets that uh, one. Damn it. So, yeah, there really weren't that many big birthdays today, but those are the ones we're going to celebrate. So happy birthday to those people. Our five actors we threw under the wheel for episode 42. That's where we're at, 42. We had Tim Curry, James Woods, Oliver Platt, Andre Holland. But none of those matter, even though we would have loved dunking on James Woods for an episode Mm -hmm. because the wheel did not select them. The wheel chose Holly Hunter who has about 65 credits on her roster, and we're going to dig into it. We've got Jay here to join us to talk a little bit about Holly's background. And as always, we start with a little trivia from James to see what kind of a Fast and Furious trivia you can stump us on. So, Jay, I know you are a fan of the show, but for those of you listening who are new to this, we do two truths and a lie. Two of these are going to be facts about Holly Hunter. One of them is going to be a fact about the ever-expanding and accomplished cast of the Fast and the Furious franchise. And you guys have to guess which one that is. You don't have to nail the actor, but the guys seem to have been trying that out recently. And I think our last two, three guests in a row actually did nail who the actor was, which has never happened before. So that's a bit of a hot streak that we have going here. A lot of pressure. No pressure, Jay. Okay, so fact number one. She placed eighth as a teen in a national poultry judging contest. (laughs) Fact number two, an accomplished pianist, she's performed live on national TV before, most recently in 2017 on Harry Connick Jr.'s now-canceled talk show. Fact number three, in 1985, she lived with four roommates who would go on to win a combined 12 Oscars. That is nobody in Fast and the Furious. <laughs> so that's ludicrous. Uh, shit. <laughs> the last one's obviously Ja Rule. This roommates with Daniel Day Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a reality show I'd watch. Jesus Christ. Daniel Day Ludicrous. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say number two. And that was playing the piano, right? Yes. And that's that's uh, Vin Diesel when he performed that song that after Paul Walker died. Too soon. Is it? I don't actually know. I don't even know when Paul Walker died. Sorry for everyone who's a huge fan. I'm going to say the the lie. I, I'm pretty sure I know number three is right. And two, based on her filmography, I'm going to say is right as well. Although that might be the trick. This could be a real Princess Bride situation. <laughs> <laughs> I poisoned all the glasses. Uh, I'm going to say number one is the lie. I'm fairly confident that the person who loves to play piano is none other than Huggy Lever, who was the pawn shop owner in Fast and Furious 6. 
Little known, Huggy Lever can rip up the keys. Do you just have like a list of every extra that's ever been on that movie franchise? I just go to IMDb. <laughs> Fair enough, me too. You know, that's how I found Hot Girl One and Two for uh, the second Fast and Furious movie. So I guess number two, and this I've already I'm already sticking with number two. Number two could be right, especially if she did play the piano in the piano. Aside from getting molested by a super super terrible looking Maori uh, Harvey Keitel, so it is possible. Cool. Okay, so fact number one is true. Uh, she placed eighth as a teen at a nat- uh, national poultry judging contest. She was the youngest of seven kids, grew up on a 250-acre farm in Georgia, and in the 10th grade, that was in 4-H. And when she was asked about it, she said, I grew up a farm, and I could give you my breakdown on how to choose the best chickens. The worst-looking chickens are the best egg layers. The ones that are the scraggliest, those are probably the ones that are the best for cooking. So she is a country girl through and through. Fact number three, in 1985, she lived with four roommates who would go on to win a combined 12 Oscars. That is true. She lived in the same house as both Cohen brothers, Francis McDormand, and Sam Raimi in Silver Lake, a neighborhood in Los Angeles. Jesus. So that is quite a grouping of roommates. Wow. And fact number two, you were right, it is a little bit of the uh, poison from Princess Bride. She is an accompli- uh, accomplished pianist, and she actually performed all of the music in the Oscar-winning role, the piano, that her character played. But the rest of the fact, she's never played on live TV and specifically not on Harry Connick Jr.'s canceled talk show. That was Tyrese, who people forget uh, started off as an R&B singer. Mm-hmm. That's three episodes in a row where Tyrese has been the, the fact there. So I just want to make sure we focus on all the skills that he brings to the table. He built his own Benihana, right? That's correct. The Benihana thing is just incredible. It's called Gibson Hana, so... What a a flex. What a flex. (laughs) Mad respect for the man. One other fact I was going to bring up, but saw it in the show notes here, and it's just impressive, so we'll we'll cover it as we go kind of through her lineage. But she has permanent hearing loss in one of her ears and can actually communicate via ASL because of a childhood case of mumps. So it is important to get vaccinated, folks. Love the pro-vaccination plug. Very much a pro-vaccination podcast. Putting it out there. Wonderful. All right, snapshot and box office history case. What do we got? Going into the box office on on Holly Hunter, I really wasn't sure what we were going to get because, you know, she's got a lot of big name movies and and she's been in the game a long time. And and I think she's got a pretty well-known name. As educated as my guess was, I would not have been able to guess about the people who she was going to end up by. So just ahead of her, Sam Rockwell. Allison Brie. She's tied with Natasha Leone, and she's just ahead of Warren's favorite, Chris O'Dowd. So there's not a more eclectic mix. Putting everything together, she comes in 17th, really behind strong critic ranking, which I don't think is a uh, surprise to anybody, and box office performance. And one of the things that pops up right away when you're looking at her box office performance specifically is that she joins our gang of performers whose films have grossed more than a billion over the budget. That's just unbelievable amount of money. Like, it doesn't even make sense what kind of money that is. James, what kind of car do you think you could get for uh, $25,000? Uh, you could get my car. You could get a nice Nissan Rogue. <laughs> <laughs> 2016, though. It's a 2016 Nissan Rogue. So if you got $25,000 worth of ticket sales, you could buy James' car 
Or you would be looking at the movie End of the Line. I dug into that one a little bit deeper, hoping to find some really cool background stories, kind of like we did with Boondock Saints. Because the movie was pulled after one week, and it was only uh, released in 42 theaters. And then I realized that it's a movie about two guys who steal a locomotive from a fictional town in Arkansas and run it to the big boss in Chicago to protest their being fired. And then I realized it's a boring-sounding movie, and no one wanted to watch it, so they pulled it. (laughs) Wilford Brimley. I saw that. Kevin Bacon at their finest. Bob Balaban and uh, Mary Steenburgen, too. Good crew right there. Yeah. You know, her profile is solid. Uh, you know, drops her right in the middle. Like I said, she's 17th out of 42. Which is her lowest area. So really, her star meter is probably her lowest one that's hurting her the most. Good to know. Love it. Thanks, Case. Yeah, man. All right. So let's dig in a little bit. First feature film is going to drop in 87. So before 87, you know, she starts in the early 80s. She's originally from Georgia. So I think that's why the chicken fact, you know, that that one felt pretty normal. But, you know, grew up in Georgia, had the hearing issue that James mentioned. Um, did a lot of plays in high school, like Oklahoma, Man of La Mancha, Fiddler on the Roof. So was doing a lot of acting early on in grade school days. She went to Carnegie Mellon, got involved in city theater, and then she moved to New York City in the 80s to live with Frances McDormand, as James had mentioned. So mm-hmm. no big deal, you know, just one of the best actresses of our generation and doing some great work. First film TV IMDb credit you're going to find is in the movie called The Burning from 81. She played a character named Sophie. And then she met Beth Henley, a playwright. They both got trapped on an elevator together. And because of that unfortunate mishap, she built a relationship with Beth and that got her a role in Crimes of the Heart in 82. So, you know, if you ever get stuck on an elevator and you're an actor, just talk to your neighbors. You never know. You never know. That's the lesson I learned through that. But then she moved to L.A. in 82, was in another movie with Jodie Foster called Svengali in 83. And then did her first Coen Brothers film in 84 in Blood Simple. Ox, it's so good. It's one of the best debut films ever, in my opinion. I think it's so good. <laughs> I've heard. Jay, uh, Coen Brothers talked about wanting to make Raising Arizona faster paced than Blood Simple. Was it a really slow movie? Yeah, Blood Simple is a really kind of patient movie that they clearly made on like a shoestring budget. It's kind of a little bit of the dawn of independent movies a little bit i mean it's really good it's it's kind of a pitch black kind of comedy although i would say it's kind of more also like a traditional thriller it's so good there's like so many incredible moments in the film the performances are all great they're doing some really freaky stuff you can just tell it's their first movie because they're doing things that not really supposed to do with like a camera and stuff it's ridiculously cool and it you know started this crazy career it's different than any other movie that they've made i guess only it's probably most similar to No Country for Old Men more than anything, both in setting and in tone. Mm. Uh, but it's it's really good. It's a, a lot of fun, dark, violent. It's awesome. I love that movie. Interesting. Last thing I'll mention, she was in 1984's Swing Shift as a character named Jeannie. Jonathan Demi movie. That's actually an interesting movie. The ratings were good for it. But that'll take us to for what we're going to call her first feature film. So kind of the first meaty, chunky role. And that's her role as Ed in Raising Arizona, a role that was, from what I could tell, written for by the Coen brothers. So Case is going to talk about it. This is a great movie, and she's great in it. I mean, I've always enjoyed this movie, and even before I knew the Coen brothers were a thing, I enjoyed this movie. And, uh, you know, we just talked about the Coen brothers a little bit, and, and this is the second movie that they worked on together. 
if this podcast you guys has taught me anything about movies and filmmaking it's you've got to have a well-written project and and you've got a head start raising arizona is certainly no no difference but getting into raising arizona it is a 1987 crime comedy starring nick cage and holly hunter you know we could just stop real quick right this is holly hunter's first feature film as as a primary role and she's starring alongside nick cage who at this time is just coming off of Peggy Sue. He's coming off the Valley Girl. He's at the at the beginning of his meteoric rise to stardom. So he's a big deal at the time. And so to get to act alongside of him is great. And then we get to add John Goodman, Francis McDormand, and William Forsythe. And she's second build in that cast, which is just incredible. I'm not going to get it into the, the plot of the movie a ton because I, I want us to cut it up together. But here's kind of the basic gist of it. Ed, played by Holly Hunter, is a police officer who meets career criminal H.I., played by Nick Cage, <laughs> while taking mug shots <laughs> many times, by the way. And one of my favorite parts early in the movie when we're introduced to her character is every time before she comes onto the screen, you hear her in her country drawl saying, face to the right. Every time she's taking somebody's mugshot, you always hear her say, face to the right. And then you see her after being paroled for a third or fourth time. Nick Cage returns to the police station, not in custody this time, but to propose to Ed. Fast forward, the two of them decide at at one point that they want to have a child. And as Nick Cage puts it, we figured there was too much happiness here just for the two of us. So we figured the next logical step was to have us a critter. Again, going back into the writing, just great lines are written here. The two aren't able to have a child biologically. And then because of his extensive criminal resume, the two are rejected multiple times while trying to adopt. And again, Nick Cage has a great line where he says, biology and the prejudices of others conspired to keep us childless. So logically, they decided the best thing to do was to kidnap one of the babies of a high-profile couple who just had quintuplets known as the Arizona Quints. Nathan Jr. Nathan Jr., Chemistry between Nick Cage and Holly Hunter is really good. Honestly, you could sit the two of them on the screen and just have them have a back and forth, and it would be great. One of the most entertaining police slash convenience store worker slash dog slash vigilante chases on foot through a town. And then you've also got a uh, merciless bounty hunter from hell trying to get Nathan Jr. back. So this movie really does have it all and it's it's really a treat to watch i found it thoroughly enjoyable i think the kind of like aw shucks lovable idiotness that nicholas cage puts off is great and then the like no nonsense that holly hunter's kind of honed for the remainder of her career for you to see it kind of early in this i thought it was right in her sweet spot so you could tell that the role was definitely written for her because to look so natural in your first major role. And it's a big movie and big claim to fame for a lot of, you know, directors and stars. I was impressed. It's one of the better debuts of anybody we've covered up to this point. I just love how it feels like a cartoon. Yeah. Yeah. The whole movie just feels like a cartoon. It's so much fun. So fast paced. It's so much different than Blood Simple just a few years earlier. She's so good. You see the country girl in her coming out in that movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's verging on like a perfect movie, I think. I mean, that movie's fantastic. Yeah, it was great. James, you pointed out this out before. A lot of times when we get first feature films, it's a side role and it's kind of, you know, they're in it for like five to ten minutes. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's one of the biggest parts of this movie. And I mean, this one's the big leagues, man. Great writing. It's got a good budget, elite actors, super well-directed, and 
mean, I couldn't yeah. recommend this movie enough. And it's 91 critic, 85 fan. Mm-hmm. You know, good in the box office, too. So if you haven't yep. seen this movie, do yourself a favor and watch it. Or if you haven't watched it in a while, watch it again. Well, 87 is a big year for her. So she's got Raising Arizona and then another role that I think she's pretty well known for. She played Jane in Broadcast News, a movie we talked about on the William Hurt episode. And she got her first Oscar nomination for that one. Yeah, my only issue with that movie was just how unrealistic it was in the sense that there's a love triangle between Albert Brooks, William Hurt, and Holly Hunter. Like Albert Brooks does not belong in that triangle. He's the nice guy. Nemo's mom would beg to differ. Yeah, she died. That's almost kind of the point of it, right? Is that he thinks he's part of the love triangle, but in reality, he never really was in the first place. And then he feels super entitled to her because he's been nice to her. Albert Brooks in broadcast news is the first incel. He is the villain of the movie. You you think it's someone else, it's him. He sweats, he feels entitled to someone's art. My God, he he is the villain. That scene where he sweats when he's doing the news is one of the funniest freaking <laughs> scenes in movie history. That movie, I'm on, I'm now on the third movie where I'm like, oh, well, this is kind of like a perfect movie. I love this movie so much. This is my favorite Holly Hunter movie. Ooh. On a given day, if you ask me what is the best performance that anyone has given in a movie, like every four times I will say Holly Hunter in broadcast news. I, I think her performance here where she has to like High praise. balance being really steady, also being, you know, completely losing it. She's a fucking mess. The introduction of her character just bawling her eyes out in her office before being straight faced for the rest of the day and like super professional and so good at her job. Is so good. It's up there with like introducing Indiana Jones walking out of the shadows for me as far as like we have established who this character is in 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. Then the movie just gets better from there. I love I love that movie. Love that movie. Jay, I think you and Rigby would be best friends. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever he gets here. We got those California vibes. <laughs> I agree. She's very good in the movie. And I think it's a well-earned Oscar nom on her part. It sounds like Jay would say, an Oscar snub. No, she should have won the Nobel Prize <laughs> she, <laughs> yeah. for physics. Should have gave her Finland for that movie. Yes. Pick a Nordic country. It's yours, Holly. So two years later, she's in Roe v. Wade. She played at two different characters, Ellen and Jane. And she got a primetime Emmy win for lead actress in that, I think it was a TV movie. Was it a comedy? Yeah. <laughs> depends, depends what you think about Roe v. Wade, I guess. The science fiction story. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on when you, you watch it. You know, 20 years ago, it's, it's uh, fiction and you know, nonfiction, and now it's fiction. So who knows? I just want a, a sincerely made Roe v. Wade musical. <laughs> <laughs> Same year, she's in Miss Firecracker as Carnell. Another movie with a good cast got tim robbins mary steenbergen alfred woodard i'm not gonna say it's a great movie but what i've noticed with some of the other early stuff too because we're not gonna hit every role of hers but some of the other tv movies she did during this time her dramatic chops are well on display it wasn't like it took her 20 years of acting to figure it out she knew what she was doing right away so um, i guess those uh high school productions of oklahoma really got her to a place to to where she could show that off again 89 busy year i mean Obviously, following Raising Arizona and Broadcast News, I mean, she's probably got offered tons of projects. One of them was a Spielberg film, Always. She played Dorinda. And I know Jay watched that because I saw your tweet. Mm -hmm. So I know you have thoughts. You know, this is one of those Spielberg movies that I had not seen. There's like two or three left that I have not seen still. and, And this was one of them. And my impression of this movie was always, wow, that looks boring as shit. 
that looks so dull. <laughs> I didn't know what it was about. I knew it was kind of a romance. And then I I turned this thing on. I'm charmed as hell by this thing. What a good movie. What a good flick this is. That's Spielberg, man. He's going places. It's a uh, I think he just imbues this thing with so much integrity and care. And obviously the craft is going to be there because you're in a Steven Spielberg movie. She's fantastic. She is wonderful in the movie. And there's no better testament to how good of an actress she is than convincingly portraying, loving, being in love with Richard Dreyfuss in this film in 1989. So, I mean, I, I just thought this this movie was a delight. An absolute delight. We'd like to hear that. First of a couple of roles alongside Richard Dreyfuss, too. And John Goodman. So you see her crossing with a lot of those big actors in the 90s like that. So a couple years later, so we don't have anything for four years. I mean, she's got some other stuff in there. But the, the notable one in 93 is she got a primetime Emmy win, another one, and second one, for the positively true adventures of the alleged Texas cheerleading murdering mom. Anybody see this? I wanted to watch it. No. Couldn't find it anywhere. Damn, it sounds delightful. <laughs> one of the best movie titles I've ever seen in my life. Got me hook, line, and sinker. Right. So w- worthy enough to get a, a victory in the uh, the primetime Emmy world. So that's good for her. So sh- just racking up more of the awards at this point. And speaking of racking up the awards, 93 with the piano, she swept the award season. She took everything. Oscars, SAG, Golden Globes, just like literally best actress start to finish. Right on the top of her game, she's got her Oscar which a lot of our actors we have covered haven't gotten the Oscar. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy to be that new to the game. She's been acting for 13 years at this point, but new to like American culture, you know, in the stardom after raising Arizona and it's multiple Oscar nominations and a win. It's like a five year spans from that. No, what is that? Six years from raising Arizona. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Owning the scene at that point. Mm-hmm. A lot of actors and actresses that elevating like that aren't coming from fun kind of quirky scripts and movies like Raising Arizona and and the other stuff that she's come through. It's an interesting progression. She deserved to sweep the award season and this being her only Oscar win. I don't know what other, what other movies she was going up against. I don't know what her competition was either. I, I think the performance is fantastic. I'll give you the other four. It's Angela Bassett for What's Love Got to Do With It, Stockard Channing for Six Degrees of Separation, our girl Emma for The Remains of the Day, and Deborah Winger in Shadowlands. Holly Hunter was up for Best Supporting in the Firm, same year. Yep. Yes, she was. That's fucking cheating. Emma was up for Supporting that year, too. She is one of 12 actors who have been nominated for Supporting and Lead Academy Awards in the same year. That's big time. Yep. Wow. Five years into the game. She owned the early 90s, and the, the piano certainly cemented that for her legacy, 100%. As Warren said... 93 as well. She's in the firm, plays Tammy, got her Oscar nom in supporting. So she at least was putting her bids in for an award that year. Jay, you watched this today, right? I did, yeah, for the first time. And I am, I, I did it because I wanted to knock out all of her Oscar performances. She is not in this movie very much at all. Yeah. Watching the film today, I was shocked that she got an award nomination for this movie. She's not even the most prominent female character in the movie either, but I think she's good. She's having a a lot of fun in this movie. She's playing kind of a heightened old school noir femme fatale kind of thing. And she has a lot of fun with it. I, I like that movie a lot. That's one of those nineties thrillers that they just don't make anymore. So I I had a a really good time with the movie and I, I, I think she's good Oscar worthy. I don't know, but she got her win that same year. So I'll give her a pass just because of how huge she, she was at the time. 
And she got to team up with Wilfred Brimley again. That's exciting. <laughs> the diabetes man himself. The dynamic duo. <laughs> I did see photos of her, and it looks like she was rocking the haircut that Angelica Houston had in the Grifters, just a different hair color. That's what I noticed. Very similar, for sure. 95, two years later, she's in Copycat as MJ, playing a police detective-type character. And I think, Case, you had mentioned like it almost felt like it was trying to be Silence of the Lambsy. Yeah, it felt like it was trying to capture that Silence of the Lambs. It's watchable, and, and it's enjoyable. Probably the prelude to what we'll talk about later with Saving Grace, that if producers and other folks see her do really well in roles like this Mm -hmm. um, as a detective, kind of leads her to her biggest um, television role later down the line. I enjoyed this movie. When I was looking at the reviews, I thought it was getting unnecessarily shot down by critics and fans. But then I've seen as kind of reviews have gone on, people started looking at it a little bit more favorably. I think one of the reasons it really suffered, though, is it came out the exact same week as Seven. And oh yeah, uh, ouch! Yeah, got crushed at the box office because of that. Yeah, they did not put as much thought into dates of release back then, did no, they? No, <laughs> they were just kind of winging it at that time. Apparently, it's like, hey, here's a much better horror movie. Oh, who's that? That Fincher guy? He's nothing. It's fine. Yeah. Release it. Yeah. It'd be like releasing the the Snake Eyes GI Joe movie on like the same weekend as the Avengers. It's like, yeah, it's like it might be good, but no one's going to go see it. The same year, she's in what some would call a holiday classic. I read some people wrote it's the best Thanksgiving movie ever made. Home for the Holidays. I watched it. I know Jay did, too. I found Robert Downey Jr.'s character to be extremely exhausting, and it made it very it made it a tough watch. But I understand why people would like it. Oh, that's directed by Jodie Foster. Yeah. Ever heard of her? Jay had some hot takes on Jodie Foster as a director, too. She stinks. It's <laughs> <laughs> good, good enough for me. I, I don't know. I mean, are we going to defend the director of Money Monster and The Beaver? Is that I what feel, we're doing? I feel like you're holding back a little bit, and I just want to know how you actually feel. I don't like I don't like Home for the Holidays either. It just feels disingenuous the whole time. So if you're a fan of Home for the Holidays, fuck you, but enjoy your enjoy your stuff. She married Janice Kaminsky, the cinematographer of Schindler's List in Saving Private Ryan. I had a list that is 2005, but I think it's 95. That would make sense considering the timeline. I just probably boofed that a little bit. Yes. So that's cool. You know, we, we talk about the off camera stuff as well. So she gets married in 95. I saw the pic- I saw a picture of the guy. Yeah, I don't get it. <laughs> You're saying she could do better. did good. He's got a lot of money from all that Spielberg, oh, Spielberg joints he's worked on. I don't he know. also he's might a cool just guy. be like a good person, you know? Probably have a really well-lit house. <laughs> being married is all about being shallow. <laughs> well, I know that, Warren. What I'm saying is, in this case... Word anus in his name. It can't be that cool. <laughs> I don't know. That's pretty cool to me. Yeah, or he's the coolest <laughs> dude you've ever met. <laughs> that same year, she decided to do a Cronenberg film in Crash. The other Crash. She played Helen. Mm-hmm. Gotta be better than the other one. <laughs> Not the world-famous Best Picture winner. About racism. I mean, it solved racism. Yeah. So, sure. Been racist since. thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This movie was pretty controversial when it came out. This movie's wild. Yeah. Isn't it kind of an erotic thriller where he's James Spader? Is he getting an accident? Spader is the lead. Yeah. And the, the plot of the movie is she, Spader, kills Holly Hunter's husband in a car crash and then they get all horned up and start hooking up. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. Oh, it's a true story. <laughs> it is a 
<laughs> it's insane. Like this is a movie I wouldn't recommend this movie to anyone just no. at the risk of what they might think about it. I think of about four or five different movies that when I was working at the theater, we would have to hire an extra person to stand at that the front of that theater and card everybody that went in for a second time because it was NC-17 and all the horn dog middle schoolers in my hometown were trying to sneak in and watch it. Oh my god, so this was like this was before the internet, so people were like, "Oh, I'm going to go see a titty on on a movie. I should go." Can't imagine <laughs> being like, "I want to get I want to get titillated and then going to see this movie, which yeah. is like disturbing and <laughs> even the sex scenes are they're not sexy. They're it was like, desperate these, times these are these are people with horrible addictions <laughs> and they're broken human beings. A year later, she's in A Life Less Ordinary, another crossover with our boy Stanley Tucci, the Tooch. And a few years later is in one of uh, probably her, again, one of her more well-known roles. She's in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou as Ruby, George Clooney's wife who likes to count to three. And when she counts to three, never good. I'm really indifferent on this movie. I take. I feel like there's times when I, I enjoy it, and then other times when I'm like, oh my god, just get it the fuck over with. I can see that. It's, that's about it. And I, I could probably go the rest of my life without hearing that song that they sing. Man of constant sorrow. Definitely Clooney singing, 100%. Yep. Yeah, it's got a great voice. It's got those pipes, baby. Absolutely. Yeah, it was like when we first realized it was Holly Hunter, that was the movie. I was like, oh yeah, she's in that movie. She's pretty solid in that film. And... It's a memorable character. But again, I think to Warren's point, Oh Brother, I Wear Out, that was one of those movies you're either into it at the time or you're probably not because it, it can be a little bit overwhelming for sure. Yeah. It rules. Mr. Positivity over here again. It rules. Uh, I think that movie is so much fun. I love that movie. Coen Brothers again, right? Yep. The Cobros. I mean, she's in a lot of good Coen Brothers movies for sure. 2001, after the Willennium, she is in When Billy Beat Bobby. She played Billie Jean King and that movie was re- ago with Emma Stone and Steve Carell called Battle of the Sexes. But she plays a very ripped tennis player in that one. Yeah, The editing is good enough to make it seem like she's athletic enough to pull that off. She's so small. She is. This is not a good version of that story. <laughs> she's good in it, but it's not a good version of that story. But 2001, she gets divorced. She divorces Anus or... The Janice Kaminsky, as we're going to call him, starts dating Gordon McDonald, who she worked on a play with in 2001. So and so the last one we'll mention here before Lois Critic score is 13. She plays Melanie, another Oscar nomination, another one I wish I had seen, but I didn't. And I believe Jay saw that today as well. I did. I did as well. That movie's beyondly fucked up. What I would say about 13 is what you guys said, like, oh, I can't believe people got all horned up to go see Crash. Well, I was 14 when this movie came out, and the preview made it seem it looked like about hot 13-year-olds. And so I was like, man, let's go see that. And boy, was I fucked up. (laughs) That was not at all what this movie was about. It was very dark, and it's very heavy, and not something a 14-year-old boy would enjoy. Older me totally enjoyed it. Younger me, not not so much. I think as soon as you said you enjoyed this movie, you got put on some sort of list. It is a fucking hard watch. The relationship she has with a young Evan Rachel Wood mm-hmm. is obviously like the heart of this movie, but it's a tough one. And it is, it is a difficult thing to get through. But when you're a confused 14-year-old boy watching this movie, it is impossible to get through. 
It's brutal. I mean, my my impression of this movie was what if Requiem for a Dream was written by a 14-year-old? <laughs> I think it kind of stinks, but I think Holly Hunter is awesome. I think it's one of those movies that's just like so desperately like we're going to hit you over the head with how dark and messed up this stuff is. And mm -hmm. a lot of the filmmaking is like kind of amateurish. It's from the director who would go on to make Twilight. And, you know, when I say Requiem for a Dream written by a 14-year-old, mm -hmm. this was co-written by a 14-year-old. Oh, wow. Oh. To this day, the youngest nominee uh, for screenplay at the Oscars. Holly Hunter is incredible in this movie, and I think is the only kind of heart that the movie has whatsoever because the rest of it is so over the top, but she's awesome movie. Not so much for me, but I hunter just putting in the work. She gets easily manipulated a lot by Evan Rachel Wood. Who's a pretty sinister character in this movie. All right. Sounds like a, just a roaring recommendation for our listening audience. Go watch 13. That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> well, speaking of doing the work, she's doing the work and lowest critic score, little black book, 2004. And James is going to talk about it. Gleefully, maybe. I don't know. I love the rotation that we have on here because I feel like when it is a highest critic score, I get like a cartoon. And when it's the lowest <laughs> critic score, I get a Bomberuski. So I'm, I, I appreciate the trend we have going. <laughs> but with Little Black Book, I think it is like, what are the critics have it at? Like 34, maybe? It, it, it's got a pretty bad critic review. But quick synopsis, Brittany Murphy plays an associate producer for a daytime talk show, and she is confused by her boyfriend, played by Ron Livingston's like unwillingness to talk about his ex-girlfriends or introduce her to his friends or family. Because of that, she's trying to come up with a story for the daytime talk show she's producing. Her coworker, who eggs her on, is played by our girl Holly. And she tells her, why don't you sneak a look at his Palm Pilot, which is a major part of the story. Like, they bring up a Palm Pilot so much. So the, <laughs> the technology is so dated. It's very referenced. But the, it, it is queer. It kind of comes across like an advertisement for Palm Pilots. But she's like, why don't you steal his Palm Pilot and get the number, names and numbers of his exes and set up interviews with them. And, you know, try to get closer to your man while being absolutely devious the whole time. It's a terrible plan from the start. But it's like a... You can see when it comes to a rom-com why they would make that, like, the plot line of it. She ends up becoming, like, friends with some of them, and, you know, things go awry, and it's a classic uh, whimsical rom-com, not really that realistic, but here's some things that happened. My review of this movie is it's hard to root for some of the main characters, because I think, uh, specifically Brittany Murphy, I think what she's doing to her boyfriend's fucked up. <laughs> like, I, I don't think you should, like, if you're in a good relationship, what are you doing? Like, what is this? I think Holly Hunter's kind of in her sweet spot, and she's playing, like, the... No nonsense, kind of, I'm, I'm the smartest girl in the room, but I'm also a little wild. Uh, and I think she does well there, but the movie itself ultimately fell flat. I don't think it's as bad as the critics say. I feel like when a rom-com isn't that great, people can't wait to dunk on it because I think they just don't like rom-coms that much. It sucked in the box office. Yep, it bombed Bomberuski. So well-earned lowest critic score is what I'm hearing. But it's just not that bad. Like, it, it's okay. Yeah. Every review you see from this is like, like one of them I, I saw was funny, but it was way too harsh. It's like, it's a romance-free, comedy-free, romantic comedy. It's like, all right, one <laughs> funny review, but like, come on. Like, there's like some jokes that are funny. There's some like heartfelt scenes. It's just, it's just not memorable. Yeah. All right, Little Black Book, lowest critic score. Same year, normally we have stuff, projects in between reviews, but 
you know, we had two reviews back to back in the same year in terms of just production schedule. So you've got largest critic gap on the back end of that in 04, and that is The Incredibles. And Jay, as our guest Munson, is going to step in. Normally our guests take my review. So in this case, Jay gets largest critic gap and he gets a cartoon, which, you know, it's a Pixar film world. We'll see what Jay thinks. Love a tune. Yeah, The Incredibles. Everybody knows The Incredibles. Holly Hunter plays... Uh... What's her character's name? Helen? Helen Parr? Elastigirl? Yep. Is the, the matriarch of a family of superheroes in a world where superheroes have been outlawed. And this movie, I'm going to continue my streak of being really positive and sounding hyperbolic, but this just happens to be an opinion I have on an episode with about Holly Hunter, who has a lot of movies that I really love. I think The Incredibles is the greatest superhero movie ever made. I think it is top three like Pixar movies ever made. And I think Holly Hunter is perfect for an animated film like this. She has such a unique voice, that kind of Southern, little bit of a Southern Southern thing where she's leaning into it a little bit more, I think, in this movie than she does in mm-hmm. a lot of her movies. But uh, such a distinctive voice. I can just hear it in my head just thinking about it. And her character is honestly like one of the better female superhero characters ever put on film as well it's very respectful without like making her into this stupid girl boss or whatever and she has some great action sequences and a lot of heart and that's what this movie does have this is uh, from director brad bird of the premier animation directors of the last 40 years or whatever one of the best action directors working right now if you ask me it just happens to be in the medium of animation and this movie is funny you know, you've got the Frozone, where's my super suit thing that became just so popular, took the world by storm. This movie was a massive hit. The sequel, which I think is very underrated, was an even bigger hit. Mm-hmm. It's just a fun ass movie. And it is, it works for kids, it works for adults. It has just everything you kind of want in an action adventure movie. So mm-hmm. one of her best movies, if you ask me, and, and one of the best things that Pixar has ever done. In a big time voice role in a big time Pixar film will do wonders for your pop culture impact, too. As well as your, your box office stats. Exactly. People may not know her name, but they'll know her voice 100%. Oh, absolutely. From Elastigirl. Jay, I agree with everything you said there, minus maybe the top uh, superhero movie. I have to think about that. But I do agree that this movie rocks. And I think the part that you brought up in regards to her playing such a authentic kind of version of a superhero, when we've seen definitely what the extremes where it's either, you know, like an airhead or someone who's just over the top controlling. I think the heart of this is her and Craig T. Nelson's like legitimate relationship arguments and bickering that are realistic, but in a tone, in, in a conversation about superpowers and how to use them and what the government, how the government's handling those superpowers. Like you hear their, their chemistry, like that's a legit argument this couple is having about something no one on earth can actually relate to. And uh, you saw it with the second one. I thought both of them were fantastic. I just love how simple the conceit of all their powers are where Bob, the dad, he's supposed to be strong in the eyes of his children. He's supposed to be strong in traditional families. He's supposed to be the strong one. The mother is supposed to be flexible. Teenage girls often feel invisible. Mm -hmm. Uh, Young boys are super energetic and you can't keep them under control. And then the funniest one is that babies are just uncontrollable. (laughs) And so Jack Jack has like all the powers in the world, Mm -hmm. which is very funny, but just a really good conceit, really clever movie overall. It's it rocks. It's the second one with the raccoon scene, right? Where you figure out all of his powers. Yes. Oh, incredible. That, that scene yes. is so it's, good. 
It's hysterical. Literally has like seven or eight different powers across the spectrum. And you're like, oh, this kid is going to either wreak havoc on the world or be the greatest thing that's ever happened to it. I mean, it's that's definitely a film most of us, most of our listening audience has seen. So you, you were fortunate that you didn't have to explain a bunch of plot behind something. We could just kind of really oh, yeah. dig into the characters and why, why people enjoy it. So that's the largest critic gap. That is largest. What is the gap? That's- yeah, what is the gap? Critics gave it a 97, so almost perfect score. Oh, boy. Audience gave it 75. Wow. What? Yep. 22. Sounds like some Russian bot hackery right there. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like me in the theater watching a, watching a superhero movie and a cartoon, right? <laughs> <laughs> I legit don't know a single person ever who said they didn't like The Incredibles. I like The Incredibles. Thanks, Jay. Appreciate you, man. Next project we'll mention, 05. The Big White, she plays Margaret, a role very unique from the other stuff she's done. She plays a woman with Tourette's. Yeah. Her character's all over the place, and it's got Robin Williams, it's got Giovanni Ribisi. It's kind of a silly film. I don't think it's necessarily a good film. No. But I appreciate watching anything with Robin Williams, even if it's maybe not his best work. But she is definitely the, one of the standouts, because she goes all in on the Tourette's character. I'll say that. And her and Williams were fun to watch play off of each other. Yeah, so it's a weird one, yeah. kind of like a, a money heist type film, but very, very different role for her comparatively to some of the other stuff we've seen. Didn't Rigby, didn't you cover Simple Plan? Yeah, mm-hmm. love that movie. Fantastic. It did have a Simple Plan vibe to it. Yeah, and it's like everybody just continues to make worse and worse decisions the entire movie. <laughs> Except yeah. Holly Hunter. Yep. <laughs> yeah, not much agency there for her character, unfortunately. So she's in Nine Lives in 2005. Yeah, we get a little crossover with Dakota Fanning here, and it just so happens that they're both from Conyers, Georgia. Jay, is that near neck of the woods? Is near my neck of the woods. Yeah, I did not realize they were both from there. I knew Holly Hunter. Uh, I knew. Uh, yeah, I guess I did know that they were both from Georgia. But uh, yeah, definitely, definitely a place I have been before. But it's more a place you drive by than you stay. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good fun fact. A good catch there with the Dakota Fanning connection. Someone we covered about six or seven episodes ago with Sam. But yeah, her first TV work is in 07. So it takes her quite a long time to step away from the film side. I mean, she did some plays in there, too. So she's still been on stage. But to do some TV work. There we go. Right about that time, too. She became a mom to twins. So good for her. And that probably is a major reason that led her to doing Saving Grace over those next three years. Because, you know, when you're doing a TV show, the schedule is a lot more predictable than, you know, doing a film shoot for two to three months and being away. So she was an executive producer on that. And she got Golden Globe, SAG, Emmy noms. I watched a little bit of it yesterday. It's hard for me to get behind a show where the entire premise is that God is real. I, I struggle. I can only watch that for so long. (laughs) personally what do you mean kyle i don't understand (laughs) but she's a pretty commanding presence as kind of a uh just a kind of a piece of shit police officer who ends up getting visited by a a, an angel named earl who chews and is trying to convince her that this is her last chance to be saved by god well it's kind of weird too because she she uh considers herself what a a non-religious like I yeah, can't remember what the term that it said on Wikipedia, but like irreligious. So like, yeah, yeah, I, I looked it up. It means I don't give a shit. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Does not give any fucks. But you're right, though. It's an interesting contrast to her playing this role, which is basically like CSI or any type of crime show where they just interrupt the 
the pursuit of the crime with Earl showing up to basically wrestle her to prove that God's real and shit like that. Like it's, it's an interesting premise, but one that I just couldn't stick with very long. Yeah, I'd watch it if Earl was Jason Lee. Earl and Randy. Yeah, Rand- <laughs> yeah, the two two guardian brothers. Oh, what a, what an incredible show! I'd watch. That would that. be much better, much better. But that's her big TV show that she's done in her career and got a lot of awards recognition. At least she didn't win any of the awards, but she was nominated a bunch for it. But that led her to getting her Hollywood star on the Walk of Fame in 2008. So we haven't really covered many actors who have had that yet so that's a pretty cool little deal no having twins in 06 is probably the reason why she wasn't doing a ton of acting around this time she was also 47 when she gave birth to twins yeah that's beating science in a lot of ways too yeah maybe that's when she stopped being super religious <laughs> or maybe when she started being religious because like it's a yeah, fucking, or maybe, fucking yeah, miracle maybe the exact opposite yeah, right it's impressive 2012 is the next movie we'll mention it's a movie called jackie it's not the natalie portman version but she plays jackie it's a dutch film it's on tubi it has a twist that i did not see coming at all in the last like five minutes it caught me completely off guard she plays a surrogate mother who has these two Dutch babies and then moves to America. And then they find out that their mother contacted them because she doesn't have any family. And she is like got a broken leg and they need to take her to rehab because she's a drug addict. And so it's these two Dutch sisters who come overseas to meet their mother for the first time. And they kind of resent her, kind of don't. And it's their like, it's a road trip movie with who their mom is. And I'm not going to spoil the rest, but there's a, a twist at the end that completely caught me off guard. And I was very surprised. All right. So largest audience gap 2012. It is won't back down. And Rigby's going to talk about it. Different from never back down, right, James? It's not never back down. I checked because I was like, no, she was not in that movie. And then <laughs> I was like, oh, no, not the same one. <laughs> not the Jaiman Ansu rendition of this, unfortunately. Correct. I think I preferred that movie over this. This is really, this movie kind of sucks. Won't Back Down is a 2012 drama film. takes place in Pittsburgh. And it created some controversy when it came out because it basically, a movie from Hollywood you would think would be pro teachers and pro teachers union but nope (laughs) the movie kind of has a confusing message so maggie gyllenhaal's daughter is a student dyslexic third grader at a pittsburgh public school and the school is obviously failing her which happens to a lot of in a lot of inner city schools you know they're just not really up to par with what public education should be through this frustration of seeing her daughter basically going backwards in her life Maggie Gyllenhaal's character devises a plan to trigger a state law, which if enough teachers at that school sign a petition, then the school can become chartered and privatized. So they could take it over and basically revamp the way that the school is taught. Where Holly Hunter comes in is she plays the the head of the teachers union. And so she's she's the villain of the movie. I wish Holly Hunter was... She's good in it. She's blocking them at every turn. And then at the end of the movie, she changes her heart and realizes that she's on their side. But I kind of wanted her to be a little more mean. Mm-hmm. The change of heart probably would have been a little bit more ridiculous had she been such like a bitch more in the movie than like all of a sudden she changed her mind at the end. But I don't know. I thought she could a little could have been a little bit more villainous, if that makes sense. Viola Davis is also in it. She plays a teacher at the school who becomes friends with Maggie Gyllenhaal. And it's basically them trying to get this petition signed and change the way that her daughter's school is taught. The reason I I mentioned that the movie created such controversy is because it takes 
the side of private schools, which is a pretty right wing method of teaching. And I shouldn't say private schools, I should say chartered schools. And it bashes the, it makes the, paints the teachers union in a bad light, which obviously we think of, we think of Hollywood, we think they'd be on the side of the teachers union. So um, surprisingly, a lot of stars in this took this pretty un, or pretty, I should say, a pretty controversial message. They took the role in this movie. So that was kind of surprising. But at the end of the day, it's just a very cliched movie. I read just in some research that these, although there is like a state provision in California, which lets teachers do this, or which lets parents try to do this, like it's never actually been successful. So it's basically just like a fairy tale, this movie, even though it says it's inspired by actual events, no one could actually see what events actually inspired it. Um, I could see the audience gap. I could see where a lot of people walked out being like, that was lame. I wasn't the biggest fan of it. I'd rather watch Never Back Down, if I'm being honest. It's literally anti-union propaganda. It's so weird. A lot of talent in this cast. Oh, the cast is crazy. Yeah. Like Bill Dunn's last movie, which if you know who that is, he's uh, Radio Rahim and Do the Right Thing. Big, big guy from a lot of Spike Lee movies. Who else was in it? Oscar Isaac. Yeah, Oscar Isaac's in it. Viola Davis. Rosie Perez. Yeah, Rosie's in it. I was going to say, if you're interested in the Oscar Isaac career, adventure and you just want to see his rise from being in a ska band to being a full-blown actor and see him dabble with music watch it for that but i there's no other reason i would ever recommend recommend this movie to anyone cohen brothers saw this and and gave him the part in inside loon davis i can't tell if you're joking i can't either (laughs) that's not true at all i don't know yeah there you go so the next couple years we got a crossover with willie willie hurt and bonnie and clyde she plays emma parker She's in a small indie film called Paradise, which is the palate cleanser I watched right after Saving Grace, which in the first lines of the movie, Julianne Hoff tells her religious congregation that there is no God. So it was a great balancing act after Saving Grace for me and a lot of featuring of Old Vegas, which is kind of fun if you've been to Vegas and, and I enjoy that part of town. It's a pretty mediocre movie otherwise but a movie that she was in in 2016 that i i read a lot of people say that they feel like they misused her or miscast her in was batman versus superman dawn of justice she played senator finch she did (laughs) the one where she drinks granny's peach tea yeah what a classic (laughs) i mean saying she's dead is not like a big deal like it she it's it's a big part of the movie and it's it's not a big surprise but yeah she gets she gets torched. Caught in the crossfire. She's fine. She's a lot like she's a lot like Gary Shandling's character from Marvel. I know that goes over your head, Rigby, but yeah. that's exactly what it is. What was his character? He's a senator. He's a He's the senator who's like secretly working for Hydra. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Gary Shandling's last thing he ever said in a movie was Hail Hydra. Yeah. That's <laughs> oh. And then the last one we'll mention is Strange Weather, which is available on Netflix. She plays a character named Darcy. And again, another role where she's just flexing the old dramatic muscles. And she does well with them. I enjoyed this movie. It was good. It was a good movie all around. Yep. Trying to avenge the uh, copyright violations of her recently passed son. That's probably the best way to describe that one. But that's going to lead us to highest critic score. So we're going to finish, I guess, with the, finish on the high note with, for our reviews with The Big Sick. And Warren has this one. This movie's great. Um, it's it hits all the feels. It's funny. It's it's just a really good movie. 
And so this movie, it, it was directed by Michael Showalter, big fan, uh, produced mm-hmm. by, by Judd Apatow. It came up with the idea, uh, Judd Apatow was doing a podcast with Kumail, and I believe it was his wife who was on the podcast with him, um, and they kind of found out about their background. And Judd was blown away by how they met. And this movie is a story, basically, of how they met with, you know, some some liberties taken, but it was, um, you know, Kumail plays himself, a, a fictionalized version of himself, and his wife was played by Zoe Kazan. Mm-hmm. She does really great in this role, just kind of has to do a lot. But so the whole thing, just kind of general, it's it's Kumail is a Pakistani descent, and he was raised basically knowing that his family was going to set him up in an arranged marriage, and he didn't want anything of it. He's the black sheep of the family. And, you know, he says, you know, he obviously took some liberties just kind of making the movie a little bit more entertaining. But the whole thing is about how he's creating a one man stand up about his background and being a, a Pakistani in America, and, you know, how that was. But he starts dating this girl who gets sick all of a sudden, ends up in a hospital in a coma. And they had kind of been on and off in a relationship. Um, and,. Holly Hunter plays the girl's mom, plays Emily's mom. And Holly had never met Emily's mom, nor had Ray Romano, who plays the dad. Mm-hmm. And they're awesome. To, they're awesome together. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're a great couple. You know, he's, he's very even-keeled, who's obviously his, his highest concern is his daughter's health. And it's the same for Holly Hunter, except she's more outspoken, more defensive, but that's just you know how they how they are, and they neither of them had met the parents before because they wanted to make it, they wanted to make the characters fit the story, because everything else had kind of been fiction, fictionalized enough to make it you know more comedic to a point. But once she met the the mom, she said that the mom really enjoyed having her do do the role that way and everything. But Holly Hunter was great in this. You know she's she's snappy she's you know cusses a lot she's just you know she's a genuine mom in this role and you can feel it you know i'll rewatch it again this morning but there was there's a hilarious part you know when kumail first meets the parents and they don't show up till about 45 minutes into this two-hour movie and they're sitting down at a table and ray romano goes so uh just want to get you you know get to know you a little bit more and just you know let's start with 911 <laughs> 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 fucking joke killed me and he's like i'm i'm anti 911 yeah yeah he was like uh <laughs> what do you mean like i'm it was terrible like i'm not about it at all he goes it was it was a terrible day we lost 19 good guys that day <laughs> <laughs> 19 of our best men yeah 19 of our best guys that day <laughs> And I was just like, I forgot that that had been said in the role, but I was like, okay, yeah, th- that's the perfect Kumail joke for mm-hmm. that. It's a good movie. They show some pictures of Kumail and his his wife in real life afterwards, and you know, it's it's a good heartfelt movie, and I, I recommend it. It's a good one. I love this movie. I do remember my biggest takeaway for this movie just being uh, being Hunter and Ray Romano more than anything. I think this movie's okay. Uh, I enjoy it, but it, I, I don't love it. That nine eleven joke is by far the best part of the movie. But <laughs> and he was so good here, and and Holly Hunter, you're right, really powerful, strong performance. They were my favorite part of the movie. So shout out to them. Right. 
one thing I, I found refreshing about High Hunter's role in this movie is that the mom and the daughter have like a really close relationship to the point where just because the daughter's in the coma, like the mom is an extension of her because of how close they are. And you don't normally see that portrayed on film, something like that. Like when Kumail shows up, like he's not welcomed. So like, why are you even here? Like, yeah. I want to date my daughter. Like, get out of here. When he comes back and he's trying to sit next to them in the lobby and she literally puts something on the chair next to him. He's like, okay, well, I'll just go sit in the <laughs> middle of the lobby. All right. <laughs> Sits on the opposite end of like the cafeteria and Romano has to wave him over. It's a good movie. Good one to, for Warren to catch coming out of his mini retirement. All right, well, let's round this thing out. We got a couple more years to hit. And most of it's TV. First, we've got, I think, the only Malick, Terrence Malick film she was in. She was in Song to Song, a very forgettable 2017 movie. She's only in a couple scenes of it, so and there's probably not much to discuss there. But at least added the Malick to her resume. She has a recurring role on Here and Now in 2018, another big show that she was in a lot of. We mentioned earlier, Incredibles 2 reprised her role as Elastigirl in that one, where she definitely takes a more pronounced role in the second one. You know, it's all about her character kind of being carrying the superhero flag. I heard a story from Rashida Jones and it was called the best, the best like story she could tell. And she's like, I'm doing Incredibles 2 and I'm a huge fan of Holly Hunter. And I finally see her and I'm, you know, panicking because, you know, this is an icon to me. And she had like a walking boot on and she's like, and Holly Hunter asked her, like, oh, how'd you do that? And she's like, I was playing tennis the other day and I fell. And she's like, oh, you're a big tennis fan. And, and she goes, I panicked because I'm not. I was just playing and that's how I got hurt. So I, the only thing I did to like keep the conversation going was say, one time I went to this tennis match between uh, James Blake and Leighton Hewitt. And this woman screamed out that, that for James Blake to beat him because Leighton Hewitt was a racist. And, and because tennis is quiet, like everyone gasped and the players had to like acknowledge it. And she goes, and Holly Hunter responds to her and goes, yeah, that was me. I was really conflicted on if I should have said anything, but like, I felt good afterwards that I did say something. <laughs> and it was a true story. <laughs> that iconic voice going to stand on like a fucking sore thumb in the middle exactly. of golf or tennis. That's going to stick out 100%. <laughs> but let's talk about Succession. I, I know we've got some fans on the pod. Great show. And she's awesome in it. She plays the rival CEO of, of Waystar Royco, which is the company that the show is based on. She gets dragged in the second season. She's not in the first season. And I read an article from NPR that she hadn't seen the first season when she was offered the part in the second season. And she binge watched the, the first season of it. And she's like, I, she knew she had to take that role because she was so obsessed with it. From fan to a uh, supporting actress in the second season. Good for her. She's great. It's the company that the show is based around is like it comes across like a fox news con like yeah. disney conglomerate if they were one and the same and she's the extension like lawyer or pr for like the cnn of that show and so she's the no nonsense like cuts through the bullshit like it's like you're grimy i'm grimy i'm just on the other team like it she's really good in it Sounds right on brand. She's shown that she can fill commanding roles over and over and over again to the point where I was watching interviews where she's like, yeah, a lot of people are intimidated when they're around me on sets because they've seen me act and they see kind of, <laughs> and she's like, I'm like, she's like, it's hard for me to like hang out with people outside of it. Cause I'm also kind of, I don't know. She's just intense. She's a very intense personality. Yep. So yep. I don't, that's, it's not a, just a stage persona. All right. So last couple of years here, uh, just, Again, more TV shows, another political role. She plays Sally Yates in the Comey role in 2020. 
a recurring character there. A little crossover with Maya Rudolph in Bless the Hearts, an animated cartoon. And most recently, alongside Ted Danson in Mr. Mayor here in 2021, another new show. Let's dig into some top performances. Rigby, what do you got for us? Yeah, so I got a list from Gold Derby. It's a website that specializes in predicting like awards shows and like Oscar season, basically. They pick they pick what's gonna win and they kind of you try to take them on basically. So so yeah, this list is actually 12 movies, but let's just do the top 10 just for old time's sake. When did it come out? 2018. So I think right around the time the big sick came out. And it's just films, it's not TV shows. You knew the questions we were gonna ask. Incredibles two. Incredibles two hadn't been out yet. Okay. And then Incredibles one. Yeah, that's number four. Fair enough. Raising Arizona. Number three. Nice job. Big Sick. Piano. Big Sick is six. And the piano is number two. Broadcast News, number one. Broadcast News, number one. Smart list. Nice job. Put it on the board. Yeah. Calls a shot. We need five, seven, eight, nine, and ten. Firm? The firm. Firm is nine. Yep. Thirteen. Thirteen is seven. Oh, brother, where art thou? Yep. God, we're on a roll. That's number eight. Fucking murdering it. We need five and ten. Hmm. Little black book? No. <laughs> <laughs> Way to go. There's always one that we never, we didn't talk about. Some like weird role. Oh, 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 oh. Uh, cra- I bet Crash is on there. Crash is number five. Nice job. Ooh. Wow. Good call, Jay. Are we missing Blood Simple? No, it's too small. Nope. We're missing number 10, right? Right at the end? Yep. Which one is clinging like a turd? All right, the positively true adventures of the alleged Texas cheerleading murdering mom. Nope. Damn it. Copycat. Nope. Should be. The big white. Nope. Always. Ooh, the big white. That, that's a good guess. Always is number 12 on this list, but we're not counting that. So There you go, Jay. Oh, that means we haven't even peppered 11. All right, we're nowhere close, man. <laughs> Roe v. Wade. Nope. What are we missing? What's a big one? I'll give you a hint. It's got... Wilford Brimley in it. It's got Danny DeVito <laughs> in it. <laughs> Danny DeVito's in it? Yeah. Oh, oh 13. No, we already mentioned that. <laughs> you, may, you may not have talked about it. Because All right. Movies know, from the 90s, and I wasn't in that conversation. So, Hit us, or I was Hit us with it. Living Out Loud. Oh, from, yeah. From 1998. We did not mention it. I told you, there's always one that we didn't discuss. Hunter plays Judith Moore, a woman whose life begins to fall apart when her doctor husband leaves her for another PhD. She strikes up a tender friendship with her apartment's building manager, which is DeVito, a lonely man with gambling problems. It sounds pretty good, actually. Sounds like uncut gems. (laughs) (laughs) It just sounds like uncut gems. (laughs) Cool. That's a good top line. We did well. So what were the top three again? Just a recap. Broadcast News 1, Piano 2, and Raising Arizona 3. I mean, other than 10, like you guys crushed that. I mean, I feel pretty good about that top three. You could probably interchange a couple of them, but I feel like that's pretty much our top three, no matter how you pick it. For sure. Hey, first feature film is in the top three. Again, to Craig's point, not something we normally see. So what we do here, Jay, you know the rundown, but for for those listening for the first time that have you know ventured down the Munson's territory, the way we do this, we rank every actor on a scale of zero to 100 based on a variety of factors. Those factors could include longevity, project choice, their pop culture impact, any what their acting range is like, awards footprint, other talents that they might have personal life, their comedic shops, box office success, so tying a lot to Case's numbers that he gave us earlier, and anything else that matters to you. We will get it started this time with Case. I like Holly Hunter, and uh, you know I've really enjoyed learning more about her this episode. However, 
you know, even coming out of this episode, I'm, I'm ne- I've never really been, nor do I feel like I'm really going to be really drawn to a Holly Hunter film. Having a career that spans nearly 40 years is wild. One thing that impresses me is was her ability to rise to elite status in the 90s and 2000s. That's a really impressive thing that she pulled off. Being she ranked 17th out of our 42 actors is pretty impressive, considering, again, the length of her career and, and being able to stay relevant. With all that being said, I'm going to give her a 73. Warren. Just learning more about her awards footprint and some of those big, big movies like The Piano. You know, you go on Wikipedia and you look at that. They're... 15 different awards, and it's green. Uh, she won that for all of them. Very, very few movies that we've covered have done that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then nominations also, in, you know, in TV, and then, you know, nominations for other movies. Definitely kind of puts her on the same level. Not as many movies as Emma Thompson, but looking at women that we've covered, she's probably the closest to her. I like comedies, and I think... I think she hits comedies really. I think she can hit comedies really well, and I would love to see more of it. Um, and that's part of the reason why I liked her and uh, the Big Six so much is that she was able to hit all the emotions and then also, you know, bring the comedy. Um, so I can't promise I'll go see her best movies, but you know, I'll, I'll definitely see a movie when she comes out in it. But like Craig said, she's not what draws me in, but she'll she'll be what keeps me there. I like that. I'll give her like a 79. That's pretty high for you. Yeah, it is, but yeah, she she deserves score. it. You know, she Raising Arizona, good movie. Incredibles, good movie. Being 65 films, she's got a higher success rate on those movies than most of the people that we cover. Good points. Mm-hmm. Rigby, even though you missed the, you missed the 80s and 90s, but hit us with the rest. Yeah, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Raising Arizona, The Firm. I've only seen the piano once and I don't really remember it as well as I probably should. But the fact that she cruised the during award season that year kind of says it all. And that's where she gets the most points with me is her awards uh, footprint. How many times has she been nominated? Four? Four times for Oscars, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that might be the highest of anybody we've covered so far. So that, I think that's a pretty cool thing to uh to recognize different roles i mean it shows her range and all different decades i mean she's been in in the game since um since the 80s so great career but like craig said i'm not really i'm not really jazzed up about like she doesn't make me want to turn on the tv and like watch a movie with holly hunter when i see it it's not like the first thing that catches my eye but Never going to walk away from a movie after watching it and be like, that performance was awful. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you mentioned Emma Thompson, Warren, because I think she reminds me a lot of her career as well. So I'm going to give her the same score. I think what I gave Emma Thompson right around here is an 81. All right, Jay, our guest Munson, pop in. I was really excited to do this episode, not only because I had some blind spots, but also because, like I said earlier, I think she is given at worst one of my five favorite performances ever put on film. That gets you to an 80 right there. You're at a nice 80. Let's throw in also, you know, this iconic run for me from like 87 to 95 with Raising Arizona, Broadcast News, Always, The Piano, The Firm, Crash. You're talking about Cronenberg, Spielberg, James L. Brooks, The Coen Brothers, Jane Campion, Sidney Lumet. What else does a person need to do their career. I mean, people would kill have that on their resume. I think it is kind of unfortunate that she was pushed aside a little bit into the mom roles as her career went on, which is 
sadly how it goes a lot of times in Hollywood with uh, female performers as they get a little bit older. But she did have some later really great performances as well, mostly, again, as moms. But I, I ding her a little bit for longevity as a true like force of nature. The fact that she was a force of nature for a decade. I'm going to give her an 86 there. Bump her up two points for being a fellow Georgia peach. <laughs> Let's call it an 88. Boom. Love, love, love it. James, I think you're up next. Yep. So you guys have said most of it. I think where I knock her a little bit is when we originally were saying that we were doing Holly Hunter, I was like, oh, I love her. And then I tried to think of a movie I loved her in. And I was like, you know, uh, and I just sat there. I was like, The Incredibles? <laughs> like, I was like, why do I? I feel like she has such name recognition and I couldn't come up with like the role for her. And so for that reason, I kind of knocked her a little bit on that. I think she's great in everything that she is in. And I think she gets awarded properly. And so that's why I agree with you guys on that. But it, there has it, the name recognition wasn't quite there for me. And then I realized that I like her in some shitty movies. And so the, the movie box office success, I guess, I take into more account than I originally thought. But I love her and everything uh, she's in. And I appreciate that she's very open and honest about why she does or doesn't choose roles like she'll be she'll be like oh it was the greatest script i've ever read in my life and that's why i chose it and then she'll say well i was i was in a lot of debt i bought a new house and so i just needed a role and i took that she's like i choose i choose roles based on anything um and i appreciate someone who's like that blunt and honest about their career i came down to my final score i gave her a 78 round us out james i was gonna make the exact point the interview i saw she was like yeah sometimes you just do the movie for the dough in her southern accent i was like yeah, that's right on point. You don't hear actors say that very often, and I appreciate the pragmatic side of that. Reminds me of that great uh, Michael Caine quote. They were talking about he was in Jaws something or other, right? And Jaws four. Yeah, and and somebody asked him about it in an interview, and he was like, "I have not seen the film, which by all accounts is terrible. <laughs> it's bad, however, in the house it bought." It is magnificent. <laughs> I, I did, however, get the paycheck. <laughs> Oh, that's great. That was the best impersonation we've heard on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We don't get a lot of it. And I'm usually the one who does them. Apparently, you haven't had very many good impressions then. Although, Michael Caine is kind of a layup for at least like a sentence or two. Yeah. Michael Caine. Yeah. I'll round us out. So, you guys mentioned a lot of things. I would have got all of the awards, you know, Emmys, Oscars, BAFTA, Golden Globes. So, you got to love that. Her accent is so iconic to the point where like, I've watched other actresses like Sarah Paulson get asked to do celebrity impressions on like Jimmy Fallon. And she did one of Holly Hunter going to a gas station and she nailed it to the point where like, yeah, that's that's her voice. So she gets points from me for just having a really iconic voice in the game. Similar like Keith David is probably the, the comparative actor I would use for once we've covered but clearly a very commanding presence on screen. She's got about five, four or five roles that I just really thoroughly enjoy. And that says something. And I, I can just tell she's a very dependable professional. Like, you know exactly what you're going to get when you hire Holly Hunter, either as a lead or a supporting actor. She's going to do the job. She's probably going to be intense while she does it. But she's going to give you exactly what you ask for. And that's why she stayed as busy as she has over 40 years. Not Treo level busy but busy enough to stay relevant and to stay on top of her game. With that, I'm going to give her an 83, which puts her right around the Chastain blunt area. Um, to your points, I think she's the closest thing to Emma Thompson that we've covered yet. So, Warren, what does that give us? That puts Holly Hunter at ninth with an 
It has her in between Lithgow and Emily Blunt. That's so fair. The fairest. <laughs> Good company. All right, so Warren, don't work too hard here, but tell us what she's got coming. Um, I'm done. <laughs> Why do we lose you for a second there? Did your audio go out? I don't know. Yeah. She's got a couple of trips to the bank to continue collecting money on Incredibles 2. Yeah. That's about it. Nil. Yeah. I, I tried to look up how much money she made in Incredibles 2 because I assumed after that, she's like, I could hit the pause button for 10 years. I can't remember, but I would imagine she'll probably pop up in succession. Oh, yeah, definitely. And uh, yeah. she won't be popping up in the DC universe. <laughs> <laughs> Unless they resurrect zombies in that world, it's not going to happen. Um, yeah, I guess it doesn't account for like recurring roles that she's already in and being brought back. But no new projects, which I don't think we've seen yet or seen since Rene Russo. What the hell is Mr. Mayor? What channel is that on? M- NBC. Yeah. Like something that would be on like Paramount Plus or something that nobody even knows exists. Like a Peacock show with Ted Danson. It's Tubi's best show. They thought Ted Danson was great in the the Happy Place or whatever that show was, and so they gave him Mr. Mayor. Good place. The Good Place is good. Jay, congrats on being here for a top ten episode. For now, it's huge. I I feel like my enthusiasm propelled her into the top ten. Uh, your score certainly did. It's true. It didn't hurt. With without you, she's not in the top ten at all. Nice. You. This is this is the part, Jay, where you thank you make everybody in the podcast thank you for your service. Yeah, that's important to you're a hero. You know, really blow yourself over the score you gave because that's what we do every time. Without you, she's 11. I want to say thank you to me on Holly Hunter's behalf. She could not be here to accept the award. She did want me to let everyone know how appreciative she was. Oh, that that's good. It would have been better if you would have said it like Holly Hunter, but we'll give you a pass on that one. Dash. <laughs> <laughs> so our next podcast is going to land on August 26th. Our guest is Marty Grohl of the Mar- Movie Marathoners podcast. He previously was with us All right. for Sam Rockwell. Great episode. Go check it out if you haven't done it yet. Our listening peoples. But those five actors were thrown on the wheel for Marty's return are Will Arnett, Bruce Willis, Shakru Khan, Chris Hemsworth and Marsha Gay Harden. What are our Ooh, thoughts on that list? Bruce. Anybody but Shah Rukh Khan. I don't know who that is. Would be our first Bollywood actor that's made the list and made the wheel at any point in time. Okay. I'm already sick if that's who we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a lot of new watches. Let's put it that way. Give me Bruce Willis. Come on. You want to dunk on him too? I would love to do Bruce Willis as well, just so we can talk about how big of an asshole he is. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm I'm almost done rewatching Arrested Development for about the 15th time. So Will Arnett's a, a good one. Yep. What else has he been in recently? I know he's in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies. What else has he done? Lego. Lego, Lego movie. Oh, that's right. Yeah, big role in Lego. The host of that Lego competition show. The TV show, yeah. I do I do Hemsworth or Marsha Gay Harden as well. Hearing Hemsworth just made me want to go watch Black Hat, which is just the best movie. Come on, Jay. Black Hat's so good. <laughs> Hemsworth would be the laziest one for me because I think I've seen almost everything he's ever been in. Yeah. Like, he's just in a lot of popular movies. Yeah, that's great. I love that. All right? Yeah, we don't have to watch much. Marsha Gay is probably my top one, though, because I think she's really good when she pops up as a random supporting actress, and she'd be an intriguing one to dig into a little bit more with the other stuff. Except for Miller's Crossing. Hey. <laughs> love that movie. I know you do. Who do we think Mati would pick? I'd say I'd say either Bruce or Marsha. 
I think he's a Will Arnett guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Will Arnett. Okay. Will Arnett would be fun, so I'd be I'd be supportive of that. So Jay, if you had to pick one of these five, who would you pick? I would fill in some Bruce some Bruce blind spots. That's what I would do. There you go. I like it. I like your philosophy. My number one blind spot to fill in apparently is I didn't know he was an asshole. I guess I missed whatever story that was. <laughs> You're missing a lot. Way behind. He almost sent Kevin Smith into retirement. He was such an asshole. Oh boy. Yeah. What did I miss? All right. Regardless, the wheel decides. We don't decide. Marty doesn't decide. Jay doesn't decide. We don't decide. Mm-hmm. Mm, maybe the wheel decides. <laughs> Jay, it's been a pleasure, man. You're fun. You've been funny as hell, dropping some bombs on us. And good looking as hell, too. This is like the end of Hot Ones, right? We we tell you this camera, this camera, this camera. Any plugs that you want to make about the show, words of wisdom for our audience, the floor is yours. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'll, I'll come back any time as long as I wasn't too obnoxious, which I've been accused of in the past. But as far as my show goes, I am uh, one of the hosts over at In Session Film. I host the Extra Film Show, which basically means we get second choice of the movies to cover. And because of that, I decided instead of covering two movies nobody wants to hear about every week, how about we turn half of the show into a recurring director series, and then in the second half of the show we cover a newer release, which is sometimes kind of more of an independent Smaller release, or sometimes there's just a bunch of blockbusters that come out at once. And like last week, we reviewed Jungle Cruise. We got to review Jungle Cruise. But in addition to the new releases, we do a director. Right now, we're doing David Lynch. Nice. In the past, we've covered the Wachowskis. We've covered, you know, we go back and do Billy Wilder. We go back and do way back in the time machine and do Powell and Pressburger movies. We, we're, we're all over all over the place on the directors that we cover. And this show is very much in line with my movie watching because I do go on these weird rabbit holes. Like last year I watched 34 Robert Altman movies. I'm known to do a a deep dive binge every now and then. Uh, So, so this show, you know, I didn't do quite as many Holly hunters, but uh, I think I watched about a dozen. That's impressive uh, in prep for this. So 12 is good. All right, man. We appreciate you being here. We will, we will certainly uh, bring you back at a later time, but as we wrap things up, you can always find us on Twitter, Munson's at Movies. You can catch us on Instagram, Munson's at the Movies. You can email us, Munson's at the Movies at gmail.com. Any final thoughts from Holly Hunter? Oh, please. Is this how you get your kicks? You overcompensating pussy little fart sack. You don't scare me. If something bad was going to happen, my psychic would have told me. Munson's out. <sighs> All right, let's go. Thank you for the education, gentlemen. We've just received a PhD in stupidity. Doctor, shall we?